This is the 68th year of the 20th century, and in the 68th year of the first century, there was an old man in a prison in Rome, a little circular cell about 20 feet in diameter, who was writing to a young man far across the Adriatic Sea in Ephesus, the Aegean Sea and Adriatic, and the subject of his letter was how to keep strong in the midst of a collapsing civilization. That's what uh, is the theme of the second letter of Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, that we're looking at tonight, Second Timothy. And that seems an appropriate subject for this uh, 20th century hour, isn't it? How to keep strong in the midst of a collapsing civilization. And as Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, who was troubled by a weak constitution, uh, a weak stomach to be exact, and uh, a fearful spirit, a timid uh, outlook on life, and uh, by uh, intense persecution and by a tremendous challenge to him far beyond his natural powers, he was realizing the fact that he himself was about to uh, depart, as he says, and to be with the Lord, and that he was passing on the torch to this younger man. And so this word from the Apostle Paul's pen is the last that we have from him and constitutes his swan song, his uh, last words of exhortation. And it is peculiarly appropriate to the hour in which we live. I want to read just the first verse of it to uh, catch the key of this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought of the gospel that way? Or of Christianity that way? The promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Not life to come so much as life right now. This evening I was speaking earlier to the junior high group and we were discussing some of the themes of life and it was generally agreed among us that one of the big problems uh, that, that people face, both old and young alike, is uh, how do you look at life? And one of the big obstacles is that Christianity is viewed as somehow a uh, detour around life. That if you're a Christian, you have to give up most of the exciting things about life. And I'm delighted that uh, we could have had this glowing report from Lambert. And, and uh, personally, I'm pleased that I could have been involved in this week at Wheaton. Because if anything demonstrated what we needed, no demonstration at all, it was that, that uh, Christianity is anything but a detour around life. It's a highway right straight through the middle of it. It's the key to life. It's that which produces the fulfillment that human hearts hunger and long for. And so in this letter to Second Timothy, or this second letter to Timothy, the apostle is giving us this key to life. Now he has four things that he wants to say to this young man, all of them important to him and all of them important to us. First he wants to say uh, to... Or, let me, let me say this. He puts these in the form of, of charges, that is, exhortations that he gives to his son in the faith. And there are four of them in this letter. The first one is to guard the truth. Guard the truth. 
The second one is, be strong in the Lord. The third one is, avoid traps and pitfalls along the way. And the fourth one is, preach the word. And if I had to write to a young man today, in this 68th year of the 20th century, I'm sure I could never find anything better put than those four exhortations. Now let's look at them quickly together. In this letter, the first note the apostle strikes is, guard the truth. God has committed to you a deposit, he calls it. A deposit of truth. And it's your responsibility to take care of it. And there are certain ways he suggests by which it's done. Now this is admittedly addressed to a young man who is a pastor. Pastor of a great church in Ephesus. And he had the responsibility of shoring up the crumbling defenses of this church under the pressure of a, uh, of a secular society and a pagan attitude around. But it's a word of advice that is needed by every Christian without exception. Because to each Christian has been given the same deposit of truth. It's the fundamental revelation of the, of the scripture concerning the nature of reality. What the world is like. What God is like. What people are like. What you are like. What makes the world operate the way it does. Why does it fall apart? Part all the time. Why is it that nothing good seems to prosper and everything evil seems to reign unchallenged? Well, the explanation is in the deposit of truth that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. And it's this that we're to guard. Now the apostle suggests three specific ways to do this. First, by exercising the spiritual gift that God has given to you. Rekindle the gift, he says, of God which is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. If you want the exact rendering of that verse, put it this way. It is not God that gives us a spirit of timidity, but he gives a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, when you look around at the world, and it looks like things are going to pot. And it certainly looks that way tonight, doesn't it? Somebody said to me, what's going to happen in Vietnam? I don't know what's going to happen in Vietnam. What's going to happen in Korea? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the election this fall, or whether there'll even be an election this fall. I don't know. No one knows. But I know this, that it's not God that gives us a spirit of timidity. If we're anxious, if we're troubled, it's not from God. The spirit of God is a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. A spirit of power in order to do, of love in order to react emotionally properly, and of a sound mind in order to be intelligently purposeful about what we do. And the way to discover that is to exercise the spiritual gift God has given you. If you're a Christian, you can do something for God. You have an ability given to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And if you're not putting that to work, you're wasting your life. It doesn't make any difference what, it, what you're doing. If it isn't built around the exercise of that spiritual gift, it's all a wasted effort.
pointless, useless. And in the judgment of the Holy Spirit, and the only judgment that counts, it'll be counted so much wood, hay, and stubble, unless it's built around that. Now, what has God given you to do? Do you know? Have you found out yet? Do you know what to look for? Do you know how to find it? (laughs) Well, you better find out. Because that's the way you discover that God does not give a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When you start exercising what God has given you, you'll discover that he's right with you to back it up. So that was the first word to Timothy on how to guard the truth. How do you keep the faith? Somebody up at Mount Hermon gave me a copy of the book by Adam Clayton Powell, Keep the Faith, Baby. I've been reading it. I haven't learned very much yet on how to keep the faith. How do you keep the faith? Well, you keep it by first exercising the spiritual gift. You see, faith, uh, the, the truth or, or our Christian faith is not some delicate, fragile flower that needs to be protected in a hothouse. Charles Spurgeon was exactly right when he said, Truth is like a lion. Who ever heard of defending a lion? Turn it loose and it'll defend itself. And that's what we need to do with this truth. We don't need to uh, apologize for it with long exegetical arguments as to why we should believe this or why we should believe that. Just begin to exercise it. That's the admonition. Second, the apostle says, by suffering patiently. And he reminds Timothy that every Christian without exception is called to suffer for the gospel's sake. But you say, that isn't me, I don't suffer. And I think sometimes we tend to feel that we perhaps have been excluded from this. And it may be because we always think of suffering as something physical. Torture, thumbscrews and iron maidens and torn apart on the rack and this sort of thing. Well, Christians do get this from time to time. There are Christians suffering like that in the world today. In fact, the 20th century is the most tortured Christian century of all. Did you know that? More Christians have been put to death in this century for Christ's sake than in any other century since the very beginning. But the suffering that's involved here is not only that, it's mental as well. It's the kind of suffering we endure when somebody smiles knowingly and winks and uh, at our faith or uh, jibes at us or laughs at us or excludes us from an invitation list or uh, treats us with considerable and open disdain or contempt because we're a Christian, who uh, pokes fun at a prayer meeting, laughs at the Bible, this kind of attitude. Now, we're to take that patiently, says the apostle. And as we don't react with anger or disgust or vengeance, but quietly, patiently, as our Lord did, we guard the truth. You know, one of the reasons why the gospel is not widely accepted in many places today is because Christians have been impatient in suffering, have refused to uh, take patiently the attitude of the world in this respect. And as a consequence, they've gotten offended and been hurt when people have treated them uh, poorly or 
they've given up and gone along with the crowd and refused to take suffering for the Lord's sake. Now, you can't challenge the world in its wrongness without it being offended at times. And though we have to challenge it in a way that's as least offensive as possible, nevertheless, the scriptures make clear that there's a place constantly for Christians' suffering. And it's one of the ways we guard the truth. And then the third way Paul suggests in this first chapter is to follow the pattern of sound words. That is, to read and trust the scriptures. The pattern of sound words. I love that phrase. There are so many today that are departing from the pattern of sound words. They believe that some secular writer writing out of the blindness and darkness of his heart has more insight into the problems of life than the scriptures. And they uh, repeat these arguments or live according to this schedule or this way of thinking and they find themselves soon engulfed in in uh, problems and oftentimes neuroses and psychoses and nervous reactions and they don't understand why. Why is it that our age is so suffering from such a tempest of emotional disturbance? Well, it's because in our blindness we have refused to follow the pattern of sound words. And so to young Timothy, Paul says, these three, three things are the way to guard the truth. Exercise your gift, suffer patiently, follow the pattern of sound words, and God will see you right through. For we know, he says whom we have believed. And uh, for I know whom I have believed, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's the proper way to read this verse. It's not what I have committed unto him. It's he's able to guard what has been deposited with me. That's the truth, the body of faith. And as I perform faithfully what the apostle suggests, I discover that God protects that in my life and protects me in it and thus keeps me in the faith. Now the second exhortation was be strong in the Lord. And it's important to notice that you never say this to somebody unless he's capable of fulfilling it. What's the use of saying be strong to somebody who's a physical weakling? And when Paul writes thus to Timothy, he realizes that here's a young man who understands how to be strong. You see, Paul isn't saying that here. He's not telling him how to be strong. You have to get that from other scriptures. That, as Lambert Dolphin has pointed out, is simply resting, learning how to trust in the working of Jesus Christ. That's the way to be strong in the Lord. But what Timothy needed was an exhortation of uh, to do it, to actually put it into practice. And that's what we need. I heard from one of the speakers at Moody Founders Week this week uh, a little couplet that helped me a great deal. He said this, When I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. I like that. That puts it exactly, doesn't it? When I try, I fail. But when I trust, he succeeds. And that's the way the Christian life is lived. Now, there are three figures the apostle uses here to indicate 
the way that this will appear is being strong in the Lord. First, as a soldier. Be strong as a soldier. And the thought here is an utter dedication to the task. No sidelines. Give yourself to the to this, that you might please him who has called you to be a soldier. And how can you follow Christ if you're going to be involved in a lot of other uh, aims in life as well? You have several conflicting purposes. No, says Paul, if you want to stay strong, be dedicated like a soldier is to one thing. Second, be strong or follow him as an athlete. That means discipline. No shortcuts. No cutting through uh, uh, the corners or breaking the rules. But just as an athlete is not crowned unless he observes the rules. So if you're going to be a Christian, don't take any moral shortcuts, but follow him. And third, as a farmer, that means diligence. Be a, be, uh, go to work on this. Don't slow down. Any farmer knows that if he expects a crop in the fall, he has to spend some time working and planting in the spring. And it ought to be that simple with a Christian. The Christian life is not one in which we simply relax and it rolls its own way and uh, we can give ourselves to just enjoying things as it goes along. No, it calls for diligence and for discipline and for reading and giving yourself to the task of knowing the scriptures and putting these things to work and deliberately applying the great principles of truth that you learn. And if you do these things, then Paul says you'll be able to stay strong, be strong in the Lord. And he closes this section, this charge, which runs from chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 13, with a reminder of what, uh, of the strength of the Lord. Not merely be strong, but be strong in the Lord. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. Two things about him to remember. He's a risen Christ. He's able to be with you at any moment, at any time. He's not limited in time and space or geography. He's available to you now. And he's a human Christ. He's been where you are. He's been through what you're going through. He knows the pressure's on you. He's felt the same fears. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. A risen and a human Christ. Now the next charge occupies the space from verse 14 of chapter 2 to uh, uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, or the end of chapter 3. And here Paul is saying, avoid the traps and the pitfalls along the way. And there are three of them that he outlines for us. The first one is battles over words. You ever see any battles over words? Christians getting all upset over some little word from Scripture. The mode of baptism, for instance. Or uh, the millennium. The premillennial coming versus the amillennial coming. And dividing up into camps and choosing up weapons and battling it out. No, the apostle says avoid this kind of thing. These are senseless and stupid controversies. And uh, they'll spread their 
way like gangrene. <clears throat> Not that these things aren't aren't important in a sense. <coughs> they are. <coughs> but they there are areas in the scriptures in which uh, honest, searching, earnest scholars still find differences. Well, then avoid those. Don't get into controversies in this area. Don't make final uh, decisions and divisions over that kind of thing. Second, he says, avoid dangerous passions. Here was a word to a young man. A young man who felt the stirrings of of passion within him, sexual drives and other things, uh, living in a sex-saturated society, much as we have today, feeling the urges and being told that everything goes and anything's all right, satisfy yourself, it's nothing but a natural urge, all the many propaganda uh, 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 positions that we hear flowing out today in so many ways. These all were hitting at Timothy. And Paul says, remember, Timothy, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earthenware, and some for noble and some for ignoble use. Now this is a beautiful figure, because Paul's talking about the whole world as the great house. And he says in that great house, God has certain kinds of people. There are those that he uses for ignoble purposes. And you'll find this occurring right now in present contemporary history. God is using men and women to accomplish his will through ignoble ways. That is, uh, wars, for instance, and uh, the war in Vietnam is an ignoble thing. All war is. And yet God is using men in those wars and in battle, killing and slaying and so on, to accomplish his purpose. But there are others who are used for noble purposes. Not destructive, not divisive, but gathering and building and uniting and healing and harmonizing. And each of us is going to be used of God in one way or another. Now he says, if you want to be used for a noble purpose rather than an ignoble purpose, then... Separate yourself from these things that destroy your life. Shun youthful passions, but aim at righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. One of the great destructive forces of our times is the looseness in sexual matters today. It's tearing apart the fabric of our civilization. And yet men are blind to this fact. But Christians are enlightened, instructed. And therefore, this word comes right home to us in living in the midst of this loose society. Shun youthful passions. Don't suppress them. But as Paul says in another place, give thanks for them. But walk uh, uh, honestly in purity before the Lord. And God will use you for noble purposes and not for ignoble. And then the third trap or pitfall along the way was a rebellious attitude. Chapter 3. Understand this, he says, in these last days there will come times of stress. And I just note in passing here 
that the last days here is not referring to the final end before the church. The last days include the whole period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. From the very day that Paul wrote this, or really from the very day in which our Lord rose from the dead, these were the last days. And in these last days, Paul says, there will come recurrent cycles of distress. We're going through one right now. When the peace has forsaken the world, and men are all upset, and there are strange demonic forces at work in society, creating immense problems in every way. And through those times of distress, uh, we will see certain forces at work, certain characteristics at play. And he lists them. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, fierce, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of religion but denying the power of it. What to do? Here's a re Basically, this is a characteristic of rebellion, a lawless attitude. Now, how do you avoid falling into this pit? Well, says the apostle, avoid such people, first of all. Don't join with them in their causes. It doesn't mean don't speak to them, but don't join their causes. Don't associate with this kind of defiant rebellion. And uh, uh, then uh, remember that that this kind of rebellion always uh, results in a in a rapid uh, revelation of the weakness of it. And remember Janus and Jambres, those two magicians who withstood Moses before the court of Pharaoh. Says Paul, these people today will not get very far either, like Janus and Jambres, but their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. That's a comforting word in this hour of lawlessness, isn't it? When we wonder how far these lawless forces are going to go. Well, it won't, they won't go too far. Because it'll soon become folly. Their folly will soon become obvious to all. And then in the closing part of the chapter, the apostle uh, tells, the, tells Timothy the way out. <clears throat> and again, it's twofold. Patience in sufferings. And persistence in truth. Remember my the way I've behaved, he says to him. You've watched me. You've seen how I've endured all the trials that came my way. Remember that if you're quietly patient in suffering and continue persistent in the truth, holding to the scriptures and what God has said, you'll find your way safely through all the, uh, the involvements and the perils and the pitfalls of the world in which you live. And then comes this final charge in chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearance in his kingdom. Preach the word. Give this out. Proclaim it. Don't merely believe it, but talk about it. Speak it. Tell it to others. Declare the great truth that God has given you. Be instant in season and out of season. And he says three things, convince, rebuke, and exhort. That is, convince those who are full of doubt, rebuke those who are full of sin, and exhort those who are full of fear. 
because those are the characteristics of a decaying age. And two things motivate the the uh, uh, Timothy to this. First, he's to do it in view of the fact that he lives in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. A whole universe is watching us. And our faithfulness is under observation all the time. God is watching. Christ is watching. And in his presence, we're to live. And second, in view of the peril of the times. The time is coming, he says, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. Well, don't give way to this. But speak the truth. Proclaim the word. And finally, he closes with this marvelous um, testimony of his own experience. I am already on the point of being sacrificed. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's magnificent when you put that back in its setting. Here is the apostle in this tiny little cell, cramped and cold and in semi-darkness, writing by the light of a guttering lamp. And uh, he knows that his fate is sealed. He's already appeared once before Nero, that monstrous wretch of an emperor. And now he must appear again before him. And this time he knows what the result will be. He'll be taken outside the city wall and with a flash of the sword, his head will roll in the dust and that'll be the end. But you notice he's looking beyond all that. Death is but an incident to the believer. And he's seeing the day when he appears before the presence of the Lord. And uh, he's suddenly ushered into the presence in which he's always been. Discovers himself with the Lord on that great day. And uh, he sees beyond all this. And yet mixed with this is a very human element. You'll notice how he says to Timothy, Luke alone is with me, but get Mark and bring him with you. And come yourself before winter, he says. Bring the cloak with you and the books and the parchment. Because he's bored in mind and lonely in spirit and cold in body. Yet, though he can look beyond to all the greatness of the glory of God to come, see how human he is. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. When we get cold or lonely or bored, we can just admit it freely. Nothing sinful about that. But remember that we must also look beyond that and add to it that dimension of faith that sees the reality of an unseen world and changes the whole complexion of the circumstances in which we live. I've often thought of that appearance of Paul before Nero. He says in verse 17, The Lord stood by me at his first appearance and gave me strength to proclaim the word fully. Isn't that challenging? He stood before that that wretch of a Nero and proclaimed the word fully so that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That was his first appearance. But he knows now it will be different. And in that day when Paul did stand this second time before the emperor, the name of Nero was the name that was honored among men and known throughout the empire. 
Who had heard of this lonely little Jew from Tarsus with his bald head and his bow legs and his poor speech? Nobody knew him. And yet today, 1900 years later, we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. (laughs) Then he closes with these personal words to his friends. What a wonderful letter this is. What a challenge it must have been to young Timothy's heart. I'd love to have gotten a letter like that from Paul, wouldn't you, in this day? And actually, that's what it is. He's writing to us as well. To stand fast and to hold fast the faithful word and the pattern of sound words. Take our share of suffering for the gospel's sake with joy and equanimity of spirit. Not returning good, not returning evil for evil, but good for evil. And remembering that he is able to keep that which he has deposited with us. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Our gracious Father, how these words have stirred our hearts anew as we find ourselves in a similar time of declension out of uh, despair among men. Grant that you who have called us with a holy calling and have imparted to us the Holy Spirit and given to us your holy word may keep us and make us to be faithful. Give us the diligence of a farmer, the discipline of an athlete, and the dedication of a soldier that will make us equal to the times in which we live. God grant that our eyes may be lifted above the commonplace obscurity of our daily life to the great things that lie beyond the the invisible curtain and see ourselves living constantly in thy presence, even in this hour. And challenge our hearts to be strong in the midst of weakness and to be faithful in the midst of that which is false. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.